Welcome to Soka Theater, a podcast about representation on film. My name's Aditi Joshi, and joining me today, now that she's finished playing the chicken drinking game with her cousins, is Lee Lai. Hey, Lee, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, for those of you who are listening who might remember our last episode with Drew Haskins about the talented Mr. Ripley, I had alluded to a very exciting special partnership coming soon. Well, Lee is an integral part of that partnership. Uh, she is the founder of MediaVersityReviews.com. Uh, Lee, do you want to tell us a bit about the website? Sure. So I founded MediaVersity at the end of 2016. Um, and it's a website that scores TV shows and movies based on how diverse they are. Um, and since then, we've just added a lot of different writers. And I'm really, really passionate about giving traditionally marginalized voices the opportunity to learn, to grow, to get bylines. Um, and so I've been doing Mediaversity since then. It's, it keeps morphing, it keeps changing, but um, it's my baby. <laughs> We are excited to announce that Token Theater is now going to be part of Mediaversity, uh, the first ever Mediaversity podcast. Uh, as Lee said, you know, the website is super focused on the importance of representation, both in bylines and in film. Every review um, that she writes with her team focuses on not just the, the quality of the film from an objective perspective, but also on how it represents people of color and women and LGBTQ communities. Uh, and obviously, Token Theater is a podcast all about the movies that are about and for and made by minority communities. So we found this to be a really, really natural partnership, and we're super excited to be part of Lee's Mediaversity team. I'm really excited that we're adding a podcast. <laughs> when you told me about Token Theater, it was it was such an easy, easy, easy decision. I like listened to half of an episode and I was like, oh yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, this this makes this is probably the most natural fit I could have imagined for for yeah. the podcast. Um, and so we're we're thrilled to be on a platform like yours and working with um, you know you and the and the folks that that you've brought on to write reviews. So I'm hoping that you know the the next half season and beyond of Token Theater will be super fruitful uh, because of this partnership. I'm excited. Um, cool. So let's get down to uh, today's episode of Token Theater. So, uh, Lee, why don't you tell us a bit about the movie that you've chosen to bring to the podcast today and, and, and what it's about? Sure. So I decided to talk about The Farewell, which is a movie that came out last year. It premiered at Sundance, um, and it's by Lulu Wong. So this movie just means a lot to me. It was on a personal level. It was my very first movie I saw at my first ever Sundance. And Sundance was the first film festival I had actually ever attended as press. And so even just by virtue of that, it was pretty momentous right away. Um, but then of course the themes as well really resonated with my own life. It's an immigrant story, but it shows all the different generations. So you have um, people who live in China and are still Chinese and continue to live there. Then you have first generation immigrants. Then you have the main character, Billy, who is in, well, in the movie, she's Chinese born and moved to New York at a very young age. But for me, I'm American born Taiwanese. And there's a lot of immigrant and intergenerational themes as well as Chinese themes that just resonated with me. And it was exciting to see a really uniquely Asian American story one that isn't super uh, like Chinese or super Americanized. 
it was really this nuanced blend of what the what the American-born Chinese experience is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's I think there's a lot of importance um, in how you view a film for the first time, and I think you probably watched The Farewell in what I imagine was the best possible environment for a f- first viewing of a film like this that resonated with you so so heavily. Yeah, I, I definitely find that I'm probably a little bit biased because that was a really exciting experience to be able to see it um, for the first time along with so many other people seeing it for the first time with Lulu Wang in the house with, I remember seeing Barry Jenkins sit down near her and I was kind of fangirling. <laughs> and this was before I knew they were dating, but um, it was just exciting and having the actors there um, and and getting everyone's first reactions, I think was also really powerful because again, it's new and you didn't like, nobody heard anything about what this movie was about or what you were about to see. And um, it was, yeah, it was a really uh, emotional movie. <laughs> I like basically cried throughout the whole movie. So did a lot of other people. Um, did you, uh, I guess if, if I could ask you to, to break down your, your reason for crying. Um, <laughs> would you say it's mostly, I mean, obviously I, I also love this movie and it's, I think you're right. It's super emotional and the intergenerational immigrant aspect of it um, will hit home to anyone who has parents or grandparents who are from overseas. Um, but did you find that you were emotional because of, of that relationship or because of the fact that it was, you know, a very specific Chinese story or because, you know, how would you, how would you describe the emotions that you had when you first saw the movie? That's a really good question. I'm not even sure if I've completely processed why it hit me so hard, but I can give you a few reasons about like maybe why. So for one thing, um, I mean, just by nature of its themes, it's about um, grief. It's about a grandmother who has cancer and her granddaughter who loves her a lot. And that's already right away kind of a tearjerker of a, a central plot. Then if you add on other layers, so my own mother, she had cancer and she's had to fight it off three different times. So the theme of cancer and of that, of family possibly dying, that really hit home. Then you also layer on all of the, again, like we said, those immigrant themes about um, estrangement, this idea of home that a lot of immigrants feel. And then, Um, the people who have emigrated, there's always a sense of nostalgia or longing for a home that I think there's something really tragic in the idea that most of the time, these original homes, they no longer exist because let's say you immigrated to the United States in the 1970s, then China, like since the 1970s to 2020, that's completely different. (laughs) So, So you leave this country that is essentially just doesn't exist anymore. And the only place these immigrants can carry it is in their heart. (laughs) Then they think there's something really tragic and beautiful about that. So those are just a few reasons why I think maybe the farewell resonated particularly hard. That that last theme I I find to be so interesting because, you know, I, I lived in India for four months at the end of 2019 into 2020. Um, and my, you know, I never lived in India before. Like you, I'm born in the U.S., raised in the U.S., had only gone to India like every other year for a few weeks at a time. Um, and to me, India was always very much a, you know, this is where my grandparents live and I'll go stay with them and then go to an aunt's house and then go to an uncle's house. And then, you know, I never saw anything outside of like the inside of my family's apartments. <laughs> I know um, that feeling. <laughs> and, and people 
you know, my, my parents speak of the India of their childhood with like some reverence and, you know, they have very fond memories of growing up there and going to school there. But whenever we would go back um, to Bombay, which has transformed, you know, beyond recognition in the last 30 years, to your point, they were kind of like, after a week or two, they're like, okay, I'm done. Like, I can't do any more <laughs> of this version of Bombay because where, you know, where my, my dad's parents live is now like the super busy main street but when they bought the apartment there 30 years ago it was kind of a quiet almost suburban area and there's so much traffic now and people everywhere and my dad is like i can't handle all these people all over the place all the time because it doesn't you know it doesn't feel like the india that i grew up in um and i think billy you know even though she aquafina's character billy even though she was only five or six or something i think in the movie when she left um china you know every time she goes back she feels that sense of loss, a loss of something that you barely knew and that you only kind of had in your head at an abstract level. Completely. And one thing I find that's really interesting also about immigrants and immigrant communities in the diaspora. So if you think about in New York, which is where I'm based, you have Flushing and you go to Flushing and in a lot of ways, these these enclaves, these immigrant enclaves are so much more old school and nostalgic than the original homes that they came from. And again, there's something I think that's just so inherently tragic and and really touching about this idea that you have all of these immigrants or in some cases refugees where it's even more fraught than they take their culture with them and it's it's with them and the original one has kind of been erased by time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and the culture that the immigrants bring with them is like frozen in time, you know. Exactly. Completely. And so, you know, my parents aren't like this. I wonder, I guess I'm curious if, if yours are, but um, a lot of Indian parents, a lot of immigrant parents generally still hold very traditional 70s, 80s, you know, immigrant uh, values from the country that they came from. But when you go back to that country, you find that their peer group has evolved, you know, to be like as Western as, you know, as just like a non-immigrant Western parent. And it's, and it's really peculiar to see that the only place that some of these kind of belief systems and old school vestiges of, of that culture exist are in the immigrant communities that have left. Okay, so for my own parents, um, I would say they're pretty modern, um, but Taiwan itself is a, it's a democracy versus um, communist China. So already we're coming from different cultures, but, um, one example I can think of, of a family member, so my brother-in-law, his family is from Hong Kong, and so they have a Cantonese culture, and his mother is um, does have a lot of more traditional values, I think, and just even just, for example, whenever we'll have a holiday dinner, she'll just cook a ton of food, like an exorbitant amount of food that nobody could possibly ever eat. And I think um, one way that my brother-in-law says is that that's a pretty traditional Cantonese thing is you just overfeed, overfeed. So he has more examples, but, um, but yeah, I definitely will see that in, in some immigrant parents where it's just a little bit more traditional than even like than home is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the farewell, actually, interestingly, it does a great thing, which I think movies are starting to do, but historically movies about immigrant communities, especially Asian immigrant communities have not done which is Billy's parents are like super westernized and and very it seem like they're part of the fabric of that Long Island neighborhood that they live in. And you even get the sense that her uncle and cousin have become very um, like Japanese and and they're not holding on to a culture that they've left, which, as you know, as we just said, is representative of our parents. And I think so many, especially modern 
immigrant Asian communities. Um, so it's like really interesting to see them go back and kind of almost revert, especially the dads, like revert to their old 20s versions of themselves, like drinking themselves silly with their mom. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I that I really found special in the farewell was their ability to paint so many different aspects of one immigrant diaspora. Um, it's not just like one narrative where you see, oh, okay, it's the Asian, it's the Chinese American experience and it's the kid and the parents. It's not just that. Um, it's it's not so narrow. You you really see the full fabric of how, how one family who might um, in their case originate from Changchun in China, how you have one family, but just immediately within that original family unit, some have moved to Japan and their culture is completely different. Um, some have moved to the States and it just, uh, I love how natural and organic it is. And there's never any dumbing down for a quote, Western audience. It's really just, it feels so real. And I feel like that in my own life too. I have um, Taiwanese family members who some moved to um, Kentucky, like our family originally. My dad first moved to Indiana and then my oldest sister was born in Virginia myself and my middle sister, we were born in Alabama. And you, like everywhere you go, you just pick up these different kind of cultural things with you. And it's a really very like complex identity that forms. It's not just being an immigrant or a child of immigrants. It's really, really unique in every person's case. So I love that the farewell just showcases that without even apologizing for it. Mm -hmm. and, and never feels the need to explain why people are the way they are. It's just kind of given that they all will be nuanced, you know, based on what you just said, where they came from, where they went, and kind of the experiences that, that, that we were assumed that, that we assume that they've had based on where they've gone. I, I'm, I'm curious, what was your experience like with portrayals of, of Taiwanese Americans and Chinese Americans in, in film before this? Had you, do you feel like there are other movies pre The Farewell that do this well, or is The Farewell kind of like a first for us in that way? Um, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think I, I'm so focused on newer movies because I think when Crazy Rich Asians came out in 2018, everybody or everybody in this world will remember all the marketing where people were like, oh, it's the first all Asian cast since Joy Luck Club, et cetera, et cetera. But um, even though that marketing is pretty much just like a blanket statement, it's pretty broad, but I think what it alludes to is that there hasn't been a ton of Asian American representation before even just like 2018. So all the movies I can think of that even even mention Taiwan as a country are newer. So like I, it's a, it's such an exciting time for um, at least in my case East Asian cinema um, and also Asian American because we have things like Never um, Never Have I Ever just came out. So it's just a really exciting time for Asian um, representation. So you like I'm I'm really excited. I just feel like there's a lot of new representations, especially for such a small country like Taiwan. But I will say anything before that, um, like prior to 2018 or so, I always just look to actual Asia for <laughs> for for a Taiwanese representation for sure. Um, and I've been doing a lot of, I think, what children of immigrants do, which is trying to rediscover their roots by watching media from from their original country. And especially during quarantine, I've just been like pounding the pavement. 
I've been watching so much Taiwanese media and I'm not sure if it, part of it is like a coping mechanism or if it's like something I can really hold on to that feels like it's rooted in something, but I've been rediscovering a lot of 1980s and 1990s movies. Um, so that movement's called like new wave Taiwanese cinema. There's just like a lot of exciting directors that I'm pretty new to, and it's been exciting to rediscover. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thing that you bring up, which is something that is, I guess we benefit from as Asian American and, and Asian Americans, sons of sons and daughters of Asian immigrants is that Taiwan and India and China, Hong Kong, Korea, all these, Japan, all these places have really robust and really built out film industries. I mean, India has, you know, puts out the most movies of anywhere in the world. Uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, all these places have really celebrated cultures of of cinema and uh, and have been exporting you know Khan winning Berlinale winning films for decades and so it's always been really curious to me that you know none of that seems to permeate the American film consciousness beyond you know the occasional film professor or someone who's like anyway going to go gravitate to foreign art house films so it's nice that that, that stuff is kind of um Kind of transitioning over even in tiger tail you can kind of see the influence of like wong kar wai and people like that like mm -hmm. pretty heavily absolutely and i like my own personal theory on it is that i mean a lot of the asian immigration waves happened in the 1970s i mean they only changed the they only allowed asians to even move here in like the 1960s and so for me it feels like this idea of asian americanism is relatively new i mean not of course not if you go back to the 1800s, Asian Americans have been in America for centuries, but to have a really big push and a big wave of younger people who were born here, I think that is contributing to um, this idea that now maybe people moved here in the 70s and 80s and the children are, are crystallizing in an Asian American hyphenate identity. And what does that look like? And we're all figuring it out because it's actually really pretty new. Um, it's an exciting time now that everybody's turning into adults and some people are choosing cinema as their medium of choice. Yeah, I think that you're right that the the John Cho, Mindy Kaling, Cal Pan, like that um, generation of artists and actors and filmmakers is probably, you know, their parents would have come here in the 60s and, and early 70s which, you know, is the new wave of, immigra of immigration. It's actually funny that, that you bring that up because I was just watching something that this, this guy, Rajiv Sethiyal, who's an Indian-American stand-up comedian, was talking about kind of Black Lives Matter in the context of the Asian-American community. And he made the analogy that, um, you know, when he, he transferred colleges midway through and his credits transferred, but his grades didn't. So he started over two years in and got all A's. And like that, that that's kind of what Asian Americans have done in the U.S. We bypassed all the hard weed out classes of the 1800s and early 1900s for the most part, with the obvious exception of like Japanese internment and and like the Chinese Exclusion Act and things like that. But this new wave of people, I think your parents, my parents, um, a lot of my friends, uh, and now we benefit from that structure being built. And to your point, are starting to crystallize that finally in media. I think the Indian American experience, you know, you mentioned Never Have I Ever all of Aziz Ansari stuff, Hassan Minaj, Cal Penn, a couple people that I know in the Indian American film community who are starting to hit it off big. It seems like the next five years are going to be the time when you really start to to hone in on what those 
now mid late thirties, early forties, um, hyphenated Americans are have to say about the experience. And Lulu Wong is right there in that generation. I think she's like late thirties. I mean, and, and the film is so autobiographical, which is crazy. I mean, we haven't even talked about what I think is the most uh, like crazy part of the film, which is the fact that they keep can't like they keep the cancer diagnosis from Nine Nine the whole time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is like the big hook, but you know, it's, it, it almost acts as like, it's like a plot driver, but the really special stuff about the movie is everything around that, all the interactions and the, and the way that the characters talk to each other. But have, is that, is that something that you have experience with? Have you seen that, um, that secrecy around illness and, you know, play out in, in your community and your family? Yeah, no, I'm glad you bring up the the central plot of the movie because <laughs> I, I had like a really interest I had a really interesting I think experience with this. So the first time I watched it, I felt like any other um like American in the audience where it felt completely surreal to me that that might happen. Um but after watching the movie the first time and then and then like asking my parents about that, where I was like, is that a thing? Do people do that? <laughs> And um, and then my parents didn't seem that surprised. They're like, oh yeah, some people do that. It wasn't the case in my family where, like, like we had maybe the opposite where my parents were the ones who knew about my mom's cancer diagnosis and I didn't find out until after the fact. So this feels more like a baby boomer American reaction to me where it's like, oh, the kids don't need to know. Like, so they kind of took care of everything first. She like had the surgery. And then after the fact, I just found out on the phone. They're like, oh yeah, your mom like had, has cancer, but it's okay. We're this far along. Like we took care of that. And I was just like, what? what? Wait, what happened? <laughs> your parents didn't tell you until after your mom had surgery? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean that, you know, you're right. It is the opposite thing, but it, it speaks to a kind of larger point about Asian Americans. I know Indian Americans are like this and like, just not talking about things like illness, whether it's mental or physical. It's just like, just so casual about it and hiding it until it seems relevant to point out. Yeah, so casual. And I, I really don't know if that, like, I'm not sure if that's an Asian thing or if it's a generational thing, because I could imagine white families doing that too. Again, with like baby boomers, maybe they just like, they're like, oh, why do they need to know? They can't do anything, you know? And that's how my parents felt about it. I can go on and on about the funny things that immigrant parents do or don't care about. And then their children are, were just like so precious about so many cultural artifacts and they just like don't give a fuck most of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's that's so true. And there's a conversation in the farewell <laughs> to that end between Billy and her mom right. when her dad is hilariously like passed out drunk in the bed. <laughs> yeah, the red underwear. <laughs> the red underwear. Um, where, where Billy is kind of like, you took me away and I didn't, you know, I didn't get to kind of have, we were like, we were talking about earlier, have that cultural experience. And her mom's like, why are you so sad? Like when I, my mom died, I just came back and like dealt with it and came home. (laughs) Completely. I know. And I like, I'm trying to do this so much with my parents where again, I'm like being such a precious, um, American about it where I'm like. Oh, like, I don't even know my grandparents' names because I only know them as, like, Akong Ama. Like, I don't know their real names. And if my parents are gone, then, like, my ties to Taiwan are, like, to me, it feels like they'll just be completely severed. So I'm trying to get them to add names on Ancestry.com. And my mom's just, like, moaning. (laughs) She's like, why do I have to do this? Who cares? (laughs) 
and I'm like trying to get stories about my relatives and my parents are just like, who cares? <laughs> it's pretty funny to me, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've had the same, I've had the same kind of experience. I, I think that we, you know, I'll go back and I'll be asking. I just, I always ask about like family members. My dad's like, I don't remember every person that you have or haven't met. Like, you know, like if you care so much, totally. like remember who they are, because it's like, you know, I have a dozen uncles and I, you know, all these things like, you know, back in India, and it's. Um, but my my mom, and my parents actually lately, they find it really funny, and I'm I'm sure your parents do too that I'm you know, that I went to live in India and that I'm so interested in like reclaiming this culture that I feel like I never had when they just like don't take the time to engage with the culture that they left behind. It's it's like almost like it skips a generation. Like my brother and I are like, why don't you teach us Hindi? Like, why didn't, you know, why didn't we learn to cook the food? And my parents are like, why do you need to know how to do those things? You live in the US, like it doesn't matter. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. Like I, my parents, um, they tried to instill some of that early on. Like I went to Chinese school and I grew up in the Bay Area in California. So there's a huge Chinese, Chinese and Taiwanese American community there. So I did have some of that structure to to be learning that stuff from a young age. Um, and I think I had a pretty standard experience when I was growing up. It felt like a chore. It's like, I don't want to go to Chinese school on Saturday things like that. But then, of course, once you get into college and later, then you just really kind of appreciate it. So again, I think it's pretty standard. <laughs> Have you talked about the farewell with your parents? Well, I tried to get them to watch it. I just kept pushing them to watch it because I was so excited for it to hit wide release and so everybody could watch it. Um, and honestly, I like I think they watched it and we just never talked about it. They probably were just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, again, I feel like there's they have this um, this connection with their identity that's so strong because they just are Taiwanese and they never have to doubt that. And I think that's one of these things where it's like the children of immigrants were just so much more like longing for something that we don't mm -hmm. have because my identity is Taiwanese American and there's not a ton of, there is an entire film industry that's like, <laughs> you know, made by Taiwanese Americans. Right. So for my parents, they just watched like like Taiwanese shows, they watch Taiwanese news and all that stuff. So maybe they watched the farewell, but they probably were just like, okay, <laughs> and like, and yeah. maybe it didn't really like resonate with them. But I should ask. That's a good point. I'll ask them. I'll be like, did you ever wind up watching that? <laughs> yeah, I think it. Maybe it's just that it resonates so much more for us because we've never seen our experiences with our parents on screen like that. And there's something really. I think maybe generationally, we're just more more likely to to derive a lot of meaning from like looking up generationally. Like, I don't think my parents watch these shows and are like, this is how I am with my kids because you know, you could watch almost any American show and be like, this is how I am with my kids because we're as a family, so Westernized and so Americanized and like you, you know, I, I grew up in can I, I grew, you know, grew up in the Midwest and mostly white neighborhoods and all this stuff. And so when I, you know, I had the same experience with my parents, as you as you did with yours at the farewell, I had when I showed them um, Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang's episode of Master of None. Oh, parents, God. yeah. <laughs> you know, oh my God, what a, that was like a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah, where the parents go to dinner, and I was like, guys, you have. I came home for. I think it was. I was in college. I was like, guys, it's, I came home for Christmas break. Watch the show. It's so good. You know, watch the whole thing. And we watched the parents episode. And my dad was like, okay. And I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. And we never watched another episode of the show. <laughs> Yeah. And I was so disappointed because I was like, don't you see how 
like relevant this is and and my, my mom and dad were like well we're not vegetarians you know like we're not most you know it's just like yeah it's like they're indian i guess but you know other than that it's not <laughs> but i did i did watch actually never have i ever with them this oh, during did. quarantine because I'm, I'm at my parents house right now and that one they actually we had like a pretty i think we enjoyed it as a family and i think there was a lot more relatability to that one maybe just because that's so much that, that's so much more american of a show it's like so much more centered in in the american culture part of it and just like loosely informed by india and not so much like this is an Im- hyphenated immigrant experience so like that's the core mm-hmm. of the story wow that, yeah that must have been interesting watching because they because they cover so many um intergenerational themes you know about like the daughter about davy assimilating or you know yeah <laughs> i'd be interested in hearing how that experience was <laughs> yeah well you know my parents don't kind of like yours like we don't talk super in depth about about movies mm-hmm. <laughs> i just i don't know maybe it's because you and i are so engrossed in like the film scene and the film community and dissecting movies that way um mm-hmm. that we're excited and willing and able to be like and then the scene with this thing happened my parents are just not like that they're like yeah it was a good movie i really like this character yeah, like it's entertainment <laughs> it's like yeah. well i was entertained so it did its job <laughs> right i, I think it's I think as filmmakers and writers, we put so much emphasis on an importance on seeing ourselves on media and like being able to say, this is our experience. Let's talk about it really in depth. And I just don't know that my parents, whether it's a generational thing or like the fact that they're not really filmmakers, they just don't feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Especially with my dad. I like, I appreciate that my parents and my dad like support media diversity, but I know that a hundred percent, they don't understand it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, I still remember having the Green Book conversation with my dad where he was so mad that I gave it a D on on um, like my review. And he was like, it's really well, in- like, oh my God, I can't even talk about it. <laughs> but he just like thought Green Book was great and he thought I was being mean. <laughs> so like, yeah, we don't get too in depth about movies when we talk about them. Um, like he loves like Bruce Willis movies, Harrison Ford. He's so much of that generation. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, what's the point in in like <laughs> yeah, the classic like, shitting all movie. over his yeah? Like I'm not gonna shit all over his favorite action movies. Like who cares? <laughs> but we did have a good conversation about Green Book. I really tried. Like that was one of maybe the most in depth conversations we've had about a movie um, because I was trying to show him how how you can enjoy a movie and still understand that maybe it's not great for certain, you know, representations. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how much of it really sank in, but I'm glad we had the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I guess I I think it took my parents a while to understand why film representation was so important to me. I think that that's something that they never really got early on, especially as I was like just starting to write movies and stuff. They were like, why does it matter if, you know, if it's Aziz Ansari versus, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, like it's a good movie. It's a good movie. If you relate to like being a 20 something, then you relate to being a 20 something. I was like, no, it's like if if I want to do something like this, then I know I can because I've seen people like me doing it and because they're telling stories like mine. And I feel like The Farewell is a great example of something where not only is it, you know, Asian lead, it's an Asian all Asian leads in a movie set in China about the Asian experience with a very Asian American plot and 
And yet it's like still because Billy is so much like us, it's still such an American movie. She has all these fears about, you know, the the grant that she doesn't get, like telling her grandmother the truth about that and about the cancer, like whether she's ever going to be, you know, live up to the expectations that people that she thinks people have for her, whether or not they have them. Yeah, well, I think that by like the people who don't really, I think, like in their core understand why representation is important. It's probably just to do with having grown up with with that, with representation. Again, like with my parents, like they never felt like they weren't on TV. They have an entire industry dedicated, like all of Taiwanese media is their story. <laughs> um, and so for me, I feel like it's, it's just that privilege of like, be, when you've had something, when you've had air forever, you don't find that you're missing air. So maybe just for those in-betweeners like Lulu Wang, like so many exciting new filmmakers now, it's the in-between identities where you never got to fit in and you never you never got to have that story told. Like the, that's when it's important is when you just like haven't had it and then you want that air, you know? <laughs> I think there's an interesting thing that I noticed in The Farewell about like grieving both pre-grieving and like grieving the way we think about it. Cause you know, there's that, there's that great scene where they go put an offering on um, the grandfather's grave and they have the, and then the professional crier is there at the other grave, but there, but you know, there's my, my favorite line in the movie, which is like, Oh, let him smoke. Like what's the worst that could happen now. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And it's like such an interesting depiction of how we think about people who have passed on. And it, it seems to me very of a piece with the way that they treat telling Nai Nai about her illness because they want her, like, why worry her about something that she can't control? Why worry her about a way she may or may not die if we can just slip her the medicine quietly and let her kind of live her life as as is? And it's, it's just a much more like candid, accepting view of death that's portrayed in the movie even though everyone's kind of struggling with the fact that Nine might die, they're all artificially being forced to keep it together, which I think is maybe how people would react even if she did die, you know, to the point that that Billy's mom makes. The whole concept of death in, in The Farewell was pretty foreign to me. Again, like, I think when I was watching it for the first time, especially, I felt like any other, um, like, American audience member. It was all new to me. I've, I've actually never done the, like, grave sweeping or visiting graves. Um, I have attended a funeral, but for my like grandparents in Taiwan, but I was tiny, so I can't remember. It was like, I don't know, single digit age. Um, so I feel pretty removed from the rituals of death and grieving, which I mean, I'm, I feel lucky about that. Um, but it's interesting to see it depicted um, with a recent movie, Lucky Grandma. It's a fun gangster heist movie set in New York City's Chinatown. Um, and that that movie also has really strong themes around um, how the movie starts off with the grandmother is the protagonist and her husband died and left her with a big debt. And so she needs a lot of money in order to stay uh, financially independent because she doesn't want to move in with her kids. Um, so in that movie, it was like, again, like I feel like I learned a lot of things by watching movies about my own culture again i think they're chinese so it's not directly my culture but you know it's in the same wheelhouse 
And so there's these um, scenes where she's interacting with the shrine at home, which is where you will put in, you'll light incense and respect your ancestors and all that stuff. And um, and like one bit of symbolism in that movie that I think maybe the everyday person might miss is that um, you you put food as offerings, right? And you like will peel the orange and you leave it on the altar so that the dead can eat. Um, and then one thing, not to give it a spoiler, I guess, but um, at the end of Lucky Grandma, so um, she's struggling with the death of her husband this whole time because he basically just like left her with um, with a lot of crap to deal with and she's not happy about that. So at the very end, she's still reclaiming her independence and her power because she takes the oranges off of his shrine and eats them herself. So that's like one bit of symbolism that I thought was really cool. And I just love being able to see a lot of these aspects or rituals around um, cultural things that I might not have thought about or known until like in the farewell until watching it and, and asking my own parents like, oh, people do this? And they're like, yeah, I've, like people do that where they won't where they won't tell the family member that they're sick and they just seem so nonchalant about it. And it was like so shocking to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you mentioned going back to Taiwan for a grandparent's funeral. I think maybe for me, the most affecting thing about this movie was that Billy um, and I relationship and kind of the idea that Billy was getting a chance to do what I think so many of us never get a chance to do, which is like actually say goodbye to your grandparents. Um, you know, she has this really great line, Al Capino has this really great line where, you know, it's like, you know, we went, went to New York and then, you know, I can't remember what she calls her grandfather, but he dies. And then we came back and he just like wasn't there anymore. And kind of like the heartbreakingness of that. Um, did you have a, uh, not to get too deep into it, but did you have like a personal, a close relationship with your grandparents growing up that lived in Taiwan? And did you feel that kind of absence? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought that up because it does remind me, like when she says that line, I do have a really personal experience that's similar to hers where, um, so on my dad's side, my grandparents died when I was so young, so I don't really remember them at all. And that was the funeral I attended as a kid. But um, on my mom's side, my, my grandfather died maybe at this point, it's been maybe like five to 10 years ago, something like that. But it was the same thing where it was just a phone call and like one day, like, it was like, oh, he passed away. And then I remember that process of, of internalizing what that meant was, was like, the main thing I remember feeling was guilty because I didn't feel more sad because I really, like, I loved him. He's such a cool guy. Like uh, my grandfather, he, he was like an intellectual during Taiwan's martial law era, which was kind of scary because a lot of intellectuals were just, you know, as they do, they get snatched by the police and disappeared. <laughs> so my so my grandfather, he like has this like this story in the family where he was about to get snatched, but he got tipped off. And so he like left outside his bedroom window. <laughs> so I really, really respect my grandfather. And um, and I remember meeting with him when I was younger and I visited Taiwan a fair bit. So I do have memories with him. But when he passed away, I just felt so guilty because I didn't really feel very much at all. And that made me sad. <laughs> yeah, I think from, I have a very similar experience, which is my dad's dad passed away when I was a senior in high school, so seven years ago. And, um, the, you know, I found out my, my mom texted me. She was like, yeah, I can come home right now from the gym, wherever I was. 
And I came back and my dad was crying, which was the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry. Right. And that's how you really know that it's real. But again, it's like, it's, it's a bit, you know, and I had a very good relationship with that grandfather, but it is a bit removed because it wasn't like we all could go to the funeral. My dad was like, he was like crying and packing a bag and he was about to be gone for two weeks. He was just like booking a flight last minute to Mumbai. You know, it's like all these logistic things that come with having lost someone overseas along with the detachment just make it like really bizarre. And I remember feeling really bad for my dad, especially because, you know, my grandfather had been sick and my dad had, I think, had a trip planned like in a few weeks or like a month to go see him anyway, because he was starting to get better. But then he passed before he could go. And I know my dad felt very guilty. And so part of that actually is what drove me to live in India for a few months this past year, because the rest of my grandparents are still around. And so I got to spend a lot of, a lot more time with them. Um, especially the grandmother who, uh, whose husband passed away a few years ago. Um, but it was so weird going the first time after I, you know, after he passed away, going to India and going to their house and everything was like the same, except for he just wasn't around. And it was like, so it was so eerie, you know, doing everything the same as we would otherwise do, but he just wasn't there. And I had never really gotten a chance to be like, to, to, you know, to, to be part of that experience where they like moved him on, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, in my case too, there's also the extra barrier, the language barrier. So, and I didn't understand this when I was growing up because I, I'll speak conversational Chinese, like Mandarin with my parents. Um, I don't speak Taiwanese Hokkien, which is the dialect. Um, and so if you look at Taiwanese history, my, uh, my grandparents' generation, they grew up learning um, Taiwanese Hokkien and Japanese because Japan had colonized Taiwan at that point. And so my grandparents speak Taiwanese and Japanese, but they don't speak Mandarin. And when I was young, I honestly just like, I, I didn't know enough about Taiwanese history yet. I didn't understand why they didn't know Mandarin. And so there, that was just an added barrier. Like ever since I was young, it was like, I can't even talk to my grandparents. My grandfather, the one who passed away that I had talked about, he knew some English. Um, he loved to travel. He was very, he was very like well-read. And so we, we were able to communicate in kind of like this pastiche of Mandarin, English, like even maybe if some words in Japanese, I don't know. Cause I like, I studied Japanese when I was in college. <laughs> um, it was just like a complete pastiche. Uh, but with my grandmother and she's the last one, the last grandparent I have who's still alive and she has Alzheimer's. And I haven't seen her in so many years. So that's, I think another very slow and removed relationship that I have where we never really understood each other. At most, she'd be on the phone and I would just like say hello and she'd say something back in Taiwanese and I would just kind of wander away. <laughs> um, and so I know that that's coming. She's, you know, she's very old and she has Alzheimer's. So she will pass away at some point and that's gonna be another, I think, like I said, a pretty removed grief that I'm gonna have to process in a different way as well. <laughs> the phone call thing is so real. I remember growing yeah. up, it's like not only you know my my big grandparents actually are very fluent in English they're 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 very That's good great. English speakers but on the phone with you know I speak quickly and my accent and their accent it's just like the the conversations never really get to the depth of the conversations that would happen if I spoke Marathi well 
you know, mm-hmm. or if they could understand my accent better, or, you know, any of these things that small barriers that are actually removed when you're in person, but you're only in person for a few weeks every year, every year. Um, mm-hmm. And so that phone call, actually, when I watched The Farewell, I was like, man, Billy, when I rewatched, it, I was like, Billy and her grandmother actually like have real conversations on the phone. And they like mm-hmm. talk and they FaceTime and it's great. And their relationship is so touching. Um, yeah. <laughs> and part of that is probably because Billy speaks Mandarin semi-fluently, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember thinking after that, like, I w- should have a stronger relationship with my grandparents. Mm, yeah, I, I know. I'm like, that's one of those things where I would love to. I just don't think it's in the cards for me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but it- but when you bring up this idea of like the, the barrier, I think that was one thing in the farewell that really hit me hard was was the barrier between Billy and her cousin, Ho Ho. Um, that like, there's just that one scene during Ho Ho's wedding where he's a, he's like a hot mess. He's just like crying and barfing and all this like, all this sloppy, sloppy stuff. Like, <laughs> but, um, but when Billy goes to comfort him and they're just both so like distraught and they're both carrying their own guilt and and sadness about about Nainai's um, cancer and like just that the way that they could not talk to each other hit me so hard <laughs> it was just so tragic their family and they should be the only ones who understand each other like the best and they just because of something so simple as migration they just like mm-hmm. they can't talk to each other <laughs> right because he speaks like Mandarin slash Japanese and she speaks like Mandarin slash English and so it's this weird they probably yeah, know words to the other person. Not good yeah, enough. And the yeah. not good enough to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that is really and but there's such a moment. There's such a moment in that scene where they really connect. But you know that they would, to your point, connect even further if they just could get over that barrier. And like they mm-hmm. may not have. They wouldn't have to have gotten to a point where they're both like blackout drunk. Like and he was like <laughs> barfing for them to actually have that moment. They could have been mm-hmm. there for each other the whole time. And I mean. Sometimes I go and I feel like Billy, and sometimes I go and I feel like Hal How's um, wife. Like she doesn't understand the thing. <laughs> she's kind of floating through the interactions. I go. She's so funny. <laughs> she's just like a perfect like comic relief. Just her like confused face all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just like, are they talking about me? I don't know because she doesn't understand the thing at all. Uh-huh. And it's it's so funny to see her. Um, <laughs> but you know that that speaks. So something we were talking about earlier of the nuance and the characters and showing the effect of migration on not just like Asian Americans, but Asians across the diaspora and how the brothers have kind of come apart and come back together despite having been, you know, thousands of miles away for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, they say. Mm-hmm, right. And there's just so much guilt that's wrapped up in all of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I was just... God, the movie is just so rich in the way it taps into all of these unsaid underlying things and resentments. Like when um, mm-hmm. in the parents' generation where some of them talk about like um, Billy's parents, they moved to America and then the Chinese family, they kind of like surreptitiously Looked will guilt it, yeah. them at the dinner table. They're like, oh, well, like you left, not in those exact words, but you know, in a shady mm-hmm. way, they're like, oh, you left. And then the parents are like, well, then why are you sending your kid to America for school? And there's just right. so much really rich shade that I love. <laughs> <laughs> it's all so real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's like definitely a bit of, 
um, I I was on the phone with my friend from India today, and I made some comment or some joke, and I think I used a Hindi word, and she was just like laughing at me. She was like, "These Americans like using this vocabulary." It's like you know, it's there's such a such a divide there between people who stayed and people who have left, and oh, and the I way know. they view it. I know we're so we're just like so sad because we try so hard. Because I have a Taiwanese friend, and she just like cracks up because I'm telling her about all these like Taiwanese dramas that I'm trying to watch on the internet, and she's like, "I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that." She's like, "What is this trash you're watching?" Yeah, right. <laughs> and then like, she'll like give me a recommendation of one that is actually being watched by Taiwanese people. <laughs> I mean, and, my, yeah, so. my my friends in India were like more American than my my. American Indian American friends that the people who've come here to the point of culture being frozen from earlier like they'll come here and they'll watch all these Bollywood movies and be super into that whole part <laughs> of it and I'll be I was in India with all these people who actually like work in the industry you know they work oh, in cool. film and Bollywood and then they were like yeah we don't watch that like those <laughs> most of those movies that you guys like aren't good like watch these you know they do the thing that that we might do to our other friends in America which is like watch these good indie movies you know watch yeah. these like real movies but we're yeah, off exactly. watching like the big tentpole weepy dramas and the soaps. Totally. And, like... You're just like trying to piece together some sad identity that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Well, let's. I think that we've we've covered all the topics of the farewell pretty well. Let's let's talk a bit about the legacy of the movie. We've you know you've mentioned a couple movies that either came right along this or right after this that. Um, that also really comprehensively tackle Taiwanese American identity or Chinese American identity. You know, The Farewell, obviously, it, it got some Oscar buzz, but didn't actually, unfortunately, make a dent in the Oscars, which was such a bummer. Um, yeah. But what do you what do you feel like the lasting lasting legacy of The Farewell is and will continue to be going forward? Well, I think The Farewell represents, to me at least, the start of a, a movement, really. Um, it's thankfully not, it doesn't feel like a one and done movie to me. It's not going to be like, um, maybe like the namesake where it came out almost 20 years ago at this point and we've all just been clinging to it. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not going to be like joy luck club where it came out in 1990 and we're just clinging to it. So I think the legacy of the farewell is just that we're seeing an explosion of filmmakers and different perspectives. Um, just, there's so many East Asian stories coming out and I'm like embracing all of it. And I think you'll you'll see parts of this conversation about how it shouldn't just be like one tentpole where it's mm-hmm. just crazy rich Asians and okay, we did it. We covered all of Asian American identity. It's like not even freaking close. It's like we covered very privileged, very, very rich, like Chinese identity in Singapore which they're basically like at that point, economically, the colonizers. So yeah. like, I'm like, okay, no, 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 this is not it. Like, um, so in, in just like recent years, and I'll just rattle them off, but we've seen Searching with John Cho, which I loved. Um, we have the half of it on Netflix. We have, like we mentioned, Tiger Tail. There's new movies like Lucky Grandma or like um, I Will Make You Mine, which is a movie that's that's showing L.A. Um, Asian Americans. And it's um, it's just a really exciting time. So I, th- I think what I want the legacy to be is that there shouldn't be one movie making a legacy. It should just be so many different perspectives. And we especially need to see films from 
from different Asians, like not just Chinese Americans and not just privileged, like light-skinned East Asians. Mm -hmm. So I want to see stories by like the Filipino community or Vietnamese or, you know, there's just so much more out there. Like the idea of Asian Americans is massive. We have so many different languages, so many different religions, cultures, waves of migration, like, yeah. I mean, the it's fact so that, different. that Asian Americans are, I don't know, like 40% of the world's population, but get one label or Asians are, yeah. you know, get one label for all. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I just want more. Like I want the farewell to just be part of a movement for like more and more and more and more. And I, I think that, I think that it already, I think that it kind of is. And I think that hopefully the fact that Aquafina won the Golden Globe and Lulu Wang is like getting all these job offers and being asked to speak everywhere and and it made money, you know, like all of these things. It wasn't just a movie that that came, was acclaimed and like quietly from a business perspective, just kind of faded into the night. And the same way that Crazy Rich Asians did, I think like, and we've talked, I've talked about this with a lot of the movies that we've done on this podcast, but it kind of proved that this movie can be a viable indie movie that you can sell at Sundance. You know what I mean? It's not, it didn't flop. It did really well. And and obviously a lot of that has to do with Lulu's vision and the fact that it's a really interesting, unique story and incredibly made. But, you know, people are are interested in seeing the story and that community can be activated. Mm-hmm. Completely, especially as um, younger generations grow up. I mean, like if you just look at even demographics in the United States, like the younger generations are so much more diverse and like the LGBTQ community is so much more fluid. And I see that with a lot of younger rom-coms where like, I just keep going back to the half of it cause I watched it pretty recently, but um, yeah, like the half of it. And also Stella and the Spades is another movie where, um, where sexuality is just more fluid and Gen Z, they just like are not thinking that hard about it, which I appreciate. <laughs> It's just about individual identity, and that story is always going to be interesting because you're you're getting this fresh view, and you've never seen it before. But there's always going to be universal human emotions. Oh, and the one other thing that I I didn't bring up earlier, but you know, because this movie takes place entirely in China, um, almost entirely in China, but it's still such an American movie. I think that it's like, you know, it, I think it, they changed the the foreign language designation partially as a result of of the farewell um, and the golden, you know, it won the golden globe for best foreign language feature, but I don't think that, I think now it's going to be international feature, you know, because it's kind of helping us think through a little bit more, like what is an American and what does an American film look like? Yeah, completely. And the Oscars and these older academies, they're just catching up. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, I'm like thinking like, it's nice to see them try and to diversify and like Ava DuVernay just got added to the board and mm-hmm. those are all good but I think maybe for like you and myself like we we're just operating in I would say like the next wave of of content and of creativity like I'm not looking to the Oscars for validation <laughs> or like I'm not gonna like that's not who I'm holding as the arbiter of taste <laughs> right right for sure um and it's you know and it's fun because now we can have this whole spectrum of things from Crazy Asians and The Farewell to my, actually my favorite, one of my favorite movies that came out in the last couple of years that is centered around Asian Americans is uh, Always Be My Maybe. I love that movie with uh, <laughs> Randall Park. <Really? laughs> I find that movie so, so fun. Funny. 
it's fine but i feel like that's the one where i'm like the bad guy because i just thought it was like <laughs> i was like oh it's just like kind of kind of like a little trashy <laughs> well, which i, I like- love trash i will i will defend trashy stuff but <laughs> but always be my baby is one that kind of flew under the radar for me although i appreciate that they had um they had a vietnamese um, protagonist with with ali wong well, it's, I, I think it's fun that movies, you know, The Farewell and Crazy Jason's both got Oscar buzz. Like, it's fun that we get to have movies that don't necessarily get that. Like, not every movie we make has to be an Oscar movie. Like, Always Been My Baby is a super fun Netflix rom-com that has, like, you know, infinite rewatchability. And it's not being nominated for anything, but the characters are really fun. And Ali Wong and Randall Park are great. And, you know, it it lives on the spectrum that the farewell is helping usher in a new generation of like, look at all these things that an Asian movie can be. Oh, exactly. No, you're completely right. Like they shouldn't all have to be these like slam dunk, critically acclaimed darlings. Um, like the, what to all the boys I love, I've loved before. Like love that's that another example. Too. Like I, I, so I loved those. I thought those were like really well-made and cute. <laughs> like I'm um, just, again, I'm, I'm just greedy. I just want more stories because every single one has like a slightly different angle and it's just exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, Lee, last question that we ask every guest on the podcast. Um, how has this movie influenced you as a writer, artist, creator? Mm. <laughs> well, let me think. Um, I would say that in terms of um, writing, uh, I spent a lot of time working on that review. Um, and I'm really proud of the way it turned out. So I don't know that it um, completely changed anything, but it was like a step in evolution where um, maybe it's one of the earlier movies that <clears throat> that I've really had to pull in my own personal experience as a person, not just um, not just being a writer who's writing objectively. And so that was interesting to find ways to weave in my own history with a review while trying to make sure I'm not centering myself because that's not the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed writing about movies that I have personal ties in. Um, and the farewell is one example of that because it just, um, it, I think it can lend a review just a little bit more heft when you can see something of the writer in it. Yeah. I mean, that's why, and maybe that's why all critics for so, so long were all white dudes because all the movies are about white guys. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that part's for sure uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Lee, thank you so much for being on. Super excited for this Mediaversity Token Theater partnership. Um, yeah, I'm sure I'll be talking to you very, very soon. Me too. I'm really excited. <laughs> listening to token theater a mediaversity podcast about representation on film as always you can find all episodes of token theater on spotify apple anchor and wherever you get your podcasts you can also find them all on the mediaversity website today's guest was lee Lai, the editor-in-chief of mediaversity you can find her writing on the website which is mediaversityreviews.com and follow her on the website's official instagram at mediaversity rev today's movie lulu wong's the farewell is streaming now on amazon prime my name is Aditya Joshi. That's Aditya.mov on Instagram. Our producer is Amanda Llewellyn. 
And once again, as of today, we are officially part of MediaVersityReviews.com. That's MediaVersityReviews.com. You can go on there and find all of our podcasts and a bunch of great reviews and articles from outstanding contributors of color, um, women, LGBTQ folks. It's a great mission. It's a great website. Highly recommend it. Uh, Go on there now. But until then, thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next week where we talk about Get Out with filmmaker Ola Kalajaye. (laughs) 